Hello, and welcome to Mountain Talk on WMMT, your mountain community radio. I'm Rachel Geringer. My job title is the public affairs director here at the station, which means I'm mostly in charge of making mountain talks and mountain news and working with our community producers to get things on the air for you, like kids radio, breaking beans, not downtown, and more. And on today's show, we're asking you to support the work of our small but mighty public affairs team to bring you local news, local stories, and interviews with folks near and far about everything from art to the economy, from the environment to healthcare and gardening, and so, so much more. On today's show, we're also talking about radio. What is this thing, and why does it matter? Why is it unique in today's world of constant visual input? What makes community radio different than commercial and public? And we'll learn about the lifelong professional and personal journeys of two super cool women in radio. Nina Ellis's parents ran a small commercial country radio station in northern Indiana when she was growing up. Nina went on to work at National Public Radio in Washington, D.C. for 30 years before becoming the general manager at WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio. Sally Kane's parents started a small community radio station in a coal mining community in Colorado when she was a kid, and she now directs the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. Nina and Sally talk about their histories with radio, their love for the form, and why they believe in the community radio model. Uh, My name is Nina Ellis, and I'm... Presently living in a beautiful town called Yellow Springs in southwest Ohio. I'm the manager of a public radio station there called WYSO, which stands for Yellow Springs, Ohio. And I'm happy to say that um, WYSO has had a lot of people uh, go from there to here over the years. Um, A lot of... um, Media producers um, went to college at Antioch College, where we're located, and have made their way here to Apple Shop over the years since it began. So we kind of think of it as a sister station to us. And um, when I told my staff that I was coming here, they were all like, oh, Apple Shop, we're so excited. We want to go. We want to go. Take us with you. So um, I'm really happy to be here. I'm really really thrilled to be. I've been here many times over the years, but um, it's always changing and new people here like yourself, Rachel. So it's great to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks for being here. I know we're all excited you're both here. Sally, how about you? You want to introduce yourself? Sure. Uh, My name is Sally Kane and I am originally from Colorado, grew up in the Rocky Mountains and a similar, there's some similarities between my story and Nina's in that Apple Shop has been a big piece of my imagination and a source of inspiration to me for a long, long time. Uh, I grew up in the mountains in a small rural community, and I also uh, have a strong affinity for both film and theater. So to find out um, as a youngster when I was getting into radio, 
through uh, my community that Apple Shop was here and that all of those kinds of endeavors were combined in, you know, to one big swirling creative expression outlet uh, was uh, really astonishing to me and has always been uh, of interest. And so I have never been to Kentucky. I have never been to Apple Shop. And like Nina, I'm just delighted to be here and uh, to see how it all comes together. Well, um, I'm sure I'm not the only person uh, who will hear this and be glad that you came to the mountains first in Kentucky. (laughs) (laughs) I always go to mountains first. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so you've both been connected to and working in radio for a a long time. And I wonder if we could start. um, Do you have a first memory of radio, of the radio, of hearing radio? (laughs) This is kind of awesome, Rachel, because Sally and I, we've only known each other not five, even 10 five, years, yeah, okay? Right. And we have had parallel lives in radio, okay? I, there's not a lot of people, I've been in radio my whole life. There's not a lot of people that can say, I've been in radio my whole life since I was a kid. Sally's one of the few people I know that can say the same thing. My parents owned a radio station. Sally's parents started a radio station, just like my mom and dad. We were in northern Indiana. She was in western Colorado. So both of us grew up hanging around a radio station. You know, my dad was a country music DJ. And so I would go to the station and sit just like this. He'd be on the air. I'd be sitting in the next chair listening to my dad's bin record. So I'm sure Sally has very, very similar stories. So when we tell people we've been in radio all our lives, guess what? I never remember a time when my dad wasn't on the radio. Mm. So for me, radio is deeply, deeply personal. So some of your earliest memories are being inside, like from the inside of the radio station, not just listening to it. Listening. Well, my dad had a Saturday morning radio show when I was a little kid. And uh, he was, that was it. His theme, he had theme music, came on the air, daddy's on the radio. And then several years after that, my mom and dad started a radio station in 1965. And... um, he was on the air there. So I don't I, I don't ever remember not hearing the radio. So it's just always been part of my life, my mental landscape. And even though I was born in 1954, people my age were born right on the tail end of an era when radio was much, much more pervasive. Uh, in people's lives than it is today. Um, television was new, and um, we uh, listened to, I don't know, radio had a big, big place in our lives. So I remember hearing radio drama in the 50s. I remember hearing The Green Hornet and, you know, shows like that. That my, And my dad remembered hearing radio in the 30s, and he would always talk to me about the shows that he loved radio. So he would always talk to me about the show. So radio is like very, very, excuse me, radio is part of my psyche, I guess, Hmm. my DNA. I think there's an interesting piece with radio that uh, particularly fast forward to the times we're living in where there's a visual associated with just about everything. 
I like to still strip that down and remove it because there's a part of my imagination that just gets up and gets stretching and moving when I'm not being supplied the visual. So I am so moved by the tenor of someone's voice when you can tell that they're coming to that place in a sentence where they could break down and cry or they're you know they're, they they could laugh out loud and you hear it and you intuit it and you feel it and nobody's drawing you a picture of that and I really uh, treasure that and I'm not a Luddite I I love technology and I trust me I wouldn't I wouldn't give up my Skype call with my mama down in Mexico for for anything but uh, the power of the human voice is something that I think some of us are just hardwired to pick up first and I know for myself um, we were um, in Montreal where my sister lives my si- my other sister and I were out at a tea house thing and and she said a couple days later I'll meet you back at that tea house and I said which one are you talking about and she said you remember the ones with you know those paintings on every square inch of the wall and it had that maroon wallpaper behind it and I said what paintings and what wallpaper and she looked at me as if I was just from another planet she could not understand and I had to laugh out loud because when I made it back to that coffee house it was unmistakably decorated with crazy wallpaper and paintings. But what I remembered when I walked through the door was that's where the woman was having a strained conversation with a man and was weeping. Mm. That's what I remembered about the coffee house. So had she said to me, you remember the coffee house where the woman was ready to weep, then I would have known immediately what she was talking about. And that was one of my first clues (laughs) of, you know, people have different orientations to how they take things in. And so I think it was a match made in heaven that my parents decided to start a radio station. And uh, my stepdad's radio name was Wiley Coyote, and he was the early morning DJ. And I still remember the album. It was, it's a Dan Fogelberg album. It's green background and like a tan colored with his long hair. The song was called To the Morning. It's going to be a day. There's really no way to say no to the morning. There's, and then at the end, there's really nothing left to say, but come on morning. And uh, it talks about watching the sunrise. And that's how he would start his show. That was his theme, his theme show. And, and, and so a lot of my memories getting up to get ready to go to school and stuff, you come down into the kitchen, and the radio would be on and that song, you know, and, and, and it became part of a lexicon in our family, because you know, early morning girls basketball practice and, and my mom's driving me in, in the car from the farm and and um, and I'd be super grumpy how early it was and she'd say, there's really nothing left to say but come on morning, <laughs> you know, and I'd be like, oh, come on morning. <laughs> and so, and, and, and now we kind of say that and, and there's another generation that, that, speaks in those ways and I'm it's it's not as if that's the only place you can find it in life but um I guess my belief is that wherever you can find it seek it um I'm curious so you've both also worked in radio for oh, a yeah. lot of your lives um <laughs> so um so we have a little bit about sort of how you grew up with it and how it's always been a part of your world but but did you always want to Nina maybe I'll start with you did you always want to work in radio did you know that I uh I wasn't sure. I thought I did, but I wasn't sure. I went wanted to go down a journalism path, 
And my parents, that was not their orientation in radio. My dad was a DJ, and they ran the business. And I wanted to be in the news department. So I did that in, in high school, and then I went to college at Drake in Iowa, and I majored in journalism. And when I came out, this was during the Watergate years, and like the journalism schools were being flooded with people and yet women for the first time, <laughs> um, I, I wanted a career in journalism. And my family uh, was in commercial radio. We had a commercial, small commercial station. And when I graduated, I went back and worked there at the family station for a year and a half as the news director in a town of 20,000 people, Valparaiso, Indiana. And I was on the air every hour with a different newscast and then uh, every night, I, and it was a what they call a daytimer, which meant the radio station was signed on when the sun came up and signed off when the sun went down. And so, you know, in the summer, we were on a long time, and in the winter, we were on a shorter time. But in the evenings, after work, I would go to meetings. I would go to city council meeting or county commissioner's meeting or whatever. The drainage board was one of my favorites. I would cover trials. I, I mean, I did everything as a one-person news department. And um, I really loved it, but I had no time on the air, really, to stretch out. You know, I had a like four-minute newscast at the top of the hour, and that was it. So I'm doing all of this. I mean, I had a lot of local information to get across many times a day, but no room to stretch out, you know. So um, I, I, I ended up um, going to Washington, D.C., and I got a job in public radio. And when I found public radio and they gave me the chance to do longer form pieces, I thought I had died and gone to heaven. So I made that jump from commercial to public um, as a journalist, and um, and that that that's been my path. So I, um, I I love the music part of radio, but for me, it's always been the the voice, the spoken word, and the you know the of bringing information to the community um, through the news and documentary. And now that I'm older, more storytelling, essays, just, you know, local voices. That's what I'm focused on now. I'm not doing as much strict journalism as I used to do. Was that your question? That's great. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I am a natural performer. I've always loved performance art and participated in it. And I see radio as performance art. I uh, was active in theater and public speaking and debate team and every musical that would come around. And so when a radio station, when my parents got on board founding a public radio station in our town, it was a natural extension. And I had this wonderful high school principal who came into a, an English class where a few of us were in the back uh, talking about something and said, you guys come with me. 
and walked us down the street of our main uh, main street of our town where the radio station was right on the main street big window into it and walked us in and said you know I think you should check this out um he was just forward thinking. He understood that all the opportunities we could get in this arena was great because when I was in school, it was all about sports. And if, you know, I, I sort of dabbled in that, but my real love was performance art. And so I always came into it with that being uh, the driving passion. Um, but in terms of work, I didn't in my wildest dreams think I'd work in radio. I uh, could not wait to get out of my hometown when I was 17. And if you told me that I'd be moving back there, I would have laughed at you at that point. I mean, it just didn't, it wasn't, didn't seem plausible at all. And um, my higher education experience radicalized me um, in terms of feminism, basically, and women's studies, which is what I really got into. And how that turned out for me work-wise was I became um, dedicated to um, women and babies and and their health and um, the empowering transitions that uh, women could go through in childbirth and rather than being robbed of the power of that, to be supported in claiming that. And the, the form that took was that I became a midwife and delivered a lot of babies. And it was all just a, just a ruse so that I could be around babies because I was, I was really like madly in love with them. <laughs> From a very, very young age, I had a fetish for them. So I had no idea. Uh, the, the way that radio stayed in my life was just purely because I loved it. And I was a singer and a musician and um, a performer and a leader. And all of those things came together around community radio. That was a big enough tent that every part of the things that I loved could find expression, <coughs> you know. So um, so I just stayed with it always as a volunteer. Um, so I came at it, even the working part of it, as a volunteer. DJ, and then as a volunteer board member, then as a station manager, general manager, executive director, and now advocating for community radio on the national scene um, because I just feel that uh, any person that that finds something they care about and is willing to speak about that and, and support it um, helps to find purpose in life. And, and I don't think life is very fun without a sense of purpose. I wonder if um, you could both talk a little bit about the relationship between or difference between, um, Nina, you talked about public radio and you're talking about community radio. Mm -hmm. And I wonder yeah. what the dis where the distinction falls there. Funny, you should ask. <laughs> Because uh, I make this distinction all the time, and it's it's actually community radio is just part of public public radio. It's just part of the big old universe of public radio, which uh, I really view um, from the historic and and conceptual place of being free of commercial and free of advert advertisement um, pressure to to guide it any other way, really, and also to have uh, a strong uh, placement and foundation in education and service. So it's those, it's, it's education, it's service, and it's free from 
commercials. And, and basically, that all began in the 30s. And it was educators who came together as radio uh, took off. And people realized this is a very powerful thing here. And we really ought to reserve a little piece of this spectrum to serve in the public interest so that all of it is not sold to the highest bidder. And that is really the spirit and the mission of public media more than anything else is holding that, holding true to that, and caring about what is in the public interest, even if it's not popular. That's part of why we tell the stories of people whose stories are not normally told or that kind of thing. Community radio within that larger tradition is similar uh, in its funding model, so it's still largely uh, relying on listener support to move it forward, which is why anyone who's listening now should support WMMT and Apple Shop. But where it differs is that community radio was really a grassroots effort within public radio that said um, not all of us need to be professional journalists and not all communities uh, f can fund that sort of venture. And there is an economy of scale in an institution like National Public Radio to uh, form a newsroom that's a, a very expensive endeavor. But in a little tiny town, um, that's not going to happen, right? So it's connected to that larger network. But it's what, what the ethic was is that this is a reflection of our community. And we are opening ourselves to whomever in our community wants to participate with us. And yes, you set up a structure like sort of a Montessori classroom, you know, and you come in and these are the ways that you treat the equipment and this is the way that we communicate with one another. And these are the layers of rules that govern what we are able and not able to do on the airwaves. But within that structure, you are welcome here. Your voice matters. And so the whole business model is built on a very small staff that creates and stewards and guides, you know, the structure and the content itself is the creation of the friends and the neighbors who live in that community. And that's the primary distinction, that it's actually made by the people who live in those communities. Hmm. That's interesting. Do you have anything to add? I would agree with that. I mean, it, this is not, you're not going to be able to go to the uh, uh, dictionary and find separate definitions for community radio and public radio, I don't think. But within the world, we do use those terms differently. And um, I, I agree with what Sally said. We typically refer to the community stations as locally, pretty much local content 24-7. And some exceptions to that. And, and on the far end of the spectrum, a lot of what we call public radio stations are all network content. You know, you'll just hear one network program after the other. With, what do you mean by network content? Well, I mean stuff from national public radio, American public media, public radio international, the BBC. These are purchased programs. And so listeners give money and those, uh, the, the local station goes out and buys these programs and puts them on the air. And they're, they can be awesome. It's not that there's not a place for that, but that's kind of generically what we call public radio. Uh, exactly, and I think that uh, really the public radio is um, largely understood by people as journalism, as 
commercial-free, advertiser-free journalism that is there to serve in the public interest. And um, and I think what's unique about radio within that in, uh, makes it a little different than print, for example, is um, the power of the human voice to convey emotion and therefore, you know, light up a story, that story that become, that lives inside of you when you hear it. And I think that's the real power of the medium. And the, the, the real difference there with community radio is just that much of that storytelling happens at the local level about people's lives in that particular location. And oftentimes it isn't, hopefully it's not in a vacuum of what nationally syndicated uh, shows are, are putting out there. In fact, some of the most powerful community radio that I've experienced is when you do have a larger global or national phenomenon, but you're bringing it home and you're trying to understand what is the impact here. And in people's own voices, they're able to communicate that. And that's where I think the whole thing kind of comes full circle. I yeah. agree with that. I, uh, to me, that is a very powerful experience to hear, you know, sometimes even a British reporter talking about something and then um, a local reporter. So, um, you know, it's it, it, the other thing that people sometimes don't understand is NPR doesn't own stations. You know, just because something is an NPR station doesn't mean it's not a locally owned entity. So to be an NPR station means that you pay a membership fee and you buy programs. So um, some stations just call themselves, we are NPR, uh, you know, and they carry all network programs and very little local stuff one way to do it. At our station, we have NPR programs and a lot of locally produced programs. So I talk about our station in Yellow Springs, Ohio as like a hybrid. Um, we have been and still retain the qualities of a community station because we have a lot of local, locally created content mixed in with the national and international programs. So it's a model that I really like. And I, that's the kind of thing I want in my life. I, I want to know what's happening all over the world, and I want to know what's happening in the next block. You know. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of community radio stations that uh, share that same philosophy. Uh, for example, the one that, that was in my town, we were um, one of the first community stations to air, um, National Public Radio's All Things Considered and Morning Edition. And, uh, you know, I'll just admit it, we pirated it. We just <laughs> threw up an antenna and grabbed it and started playing it. And they said, what are you doing? <laughs> and you better come to Washington. And so we did. And we said, we can't afford it, but we want this. And it's part of it's part of how we're understanding the world. And in fact, one of the phrases we would use to describe our station was to say we were a window to the world from our own backyard. So it had to be grounded in place, but it was with a larger vision. And uh, to Did their you go cr- to jail? No, actually, NPR <laughs> for many, many years had a clause in their contract, and they referred to stations such as ours as a Paonia type station. Oh, and that's out. how the auxiliary that. membership came to be. <laughs> and it was since eliminated in recent times, which was a disappointment to me, but they were actually wonderful. And mm-hmm. said, okay, we get it. Because NPR didn't realize 
how it was going to take. You know, public radio still doesn't understand its own success. It's kind of like, huh? <laughs> how did this happen? And you weren't competing with other public radio stations. So, so it's like, it's not like. Yeah. yeah. And for a lot of small stations, that national news needs to come from somewhere. So that is serving the local community to bring national news. Um, it's not always just local. Those that exist in um, settings where there's plenty of access to national news and other national programming have a harder time making that uh, justification. But many of the community stations that I serve in the National Federation of Community Broadcasters uh, are NPR members. You know, And they have a tough time affording it. You're listening to Mountain Talk on WMMT-FM, your mountain community radio station, broadcasting from the Apple Shop in Whitesburg, Kentucky. On today's show, we're sharing big radio love with some super inspiring women in the community radio world. Nina Ellis worked at NPR for decades before becoming the general manager at WYSO in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And Sally Kane directs the National Federation of Community Broadcasters from her home in Colorado. Nina and Sally visited WMMT and sat down with me, your host, Rachel Geringer, to talk about their histories with radio, their love for the forum, and why they believe in the community radio model. We hope you feel moved by how much you love your radio station, moved enough to go online right now and contribute to our spring fun drive at www.wmmt.org. So we're in a real pretty small town here, and most of our listeners might not even live in a town in various parts of southeastern Kentucky, southwest Virginia, maybe maybe some folks in Tennessee or southern West Virginia. Um, and I, I grew up real rural and and didn't have tv and so definitely grew up on npr my parents would have it on in the car all the time i'd be on in the kitchen and and so um i think there there's a difference between what radio can and has provided in rural spaces potentially um than than in a place where you might have access to a lot of different news sources um at once and i wonder um this is kind of a broad question, but like, what do you think the importance of radio has been in rural space that's maybe different? And and do you think that's like shifting as radio and media and technology change? Is there a uniqueness to radio in rural space still? Has there ever been? So my experience watching um, KVNF, which is the station that, that was in my town, still is. Um, we live on the North Fork of the Gunnison River, so the VNF was the voice of the North Fork. And um, my experience returning there, first of all, being a child and then coming back after 17 years to bring my own small young children and family and, um, and raise them there, is that... Um, what began as as kind of a um, something that was seen as sort of a artsy fartsy or hippie kind of endeavor uh, became an institution, and it went from ten watts in a fruit packing shed um, on a mesa in someone's orchard to ten thousand 
8,000 watts and 10,000 square miles, which is the size of Rhode Island and Connecticut combined, two transmitters, five translators. And in every instance, every mountain or valley community, people had simply heard the programming and called the station and said, we want to we, we want this to come here to our town. And those townspeople came together and raised money to bring it in. It wasn't this strategy of we're going to move out and do this. It was, you know, by invitation. And I think that speaks volumes about the transformational power of something like that. And also the transformational power of music, because it was music that was the primary unifier around people saying, yes, we're proud of this. And then when I got back after 17 years uh, to take a, a building on the main street of town and renovate it and um, have this state-of-the-art broadcast facility um, was something that you know people who didn't even listen to the radio took pride in because that's our town. So there would be you know elders in our community walking by on the street that would come in the door that had never paid any attention to the station before. And in fact, I remember as a general manager, a little old lady coming in and saying, can I show my family our radio station? Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, she's not listening, but she said our radio station. Because I think what's unique uh, to many rural communities is that um, we are so wounded by being made invisible to the rest of the country. And, you know, we're fewer numbers. We're less money. We're, you know, all those kinds of things. And the way that that ends up translating over time in the psyche, and I'm sure you can hear it in my voice right now, is that you don't matter. You're you're not seen. And so I think potentially um, the power of radio is more concentrated in a rural environment than in any other environment in the country for precisely that reason. And I remember being in the in the local grocery store um, when I was w- way into managing radio by then. And I saw a little girl peek around the corner and watch me, uh, just observing me, and I was talking to a, a neighbor, moving our carts. And then she went away, and then she came back and peeked again, and then she peeked around and kind of walked towards me. and uh, And so I, you know, turned to her. And I said, well, hello. And she said, I know you. She said, you were in my car. And she heard my voice and came through that grocery store until she found me. And it was that piece of, you know, um, being seen, being, being able to express the richness of our communities, which in many rural settings happens through what you give one another. You know, it's how you show up. It's bringing the casserole. And, and it, it, it unites people who have otherwise huge divisions. It's not always around being politically aligned with someone or having a similar interest. But when your house burns down and your neighbors show up, and um, that, that's, that's the fabric that bonds people in rural life. And radio has a way of suturing that together for people that makes it um, a life force. I was asking Benny if he had any questions for you before I came in here. And he was curious. It's fine if you don't have an answer to this. But um, since we are in our spring fun drive here at WMMT, we don't always know how far our radio station reaches and who hears us. And, you know, um, Benny's curious 
what what does this radio station look like to to a wider listening audience or to you all as people who've been in radio for a long time? What do you notice about WMMT? Well, I'll start by saying, uh, coming from a, a rural environment, I knew about Apple Shop um, from 1975. And our station went on the air in 1978. And my mother was an artist, and, um, and we were all into theater and stuff. So you can imagine, I mean, hearing about this phenomenon in a community where um, where people were struggling even more than we were on our farm to make a living and that this kind of a thing could exist and that creative expression could rise up and out and be sustained over time has been deeply, deeply inspiring. And I think Apple Shop serves as that kind of inspiration to a lot of rural stations. And I never mention Apple Shop to other uh, rural stations in our membership base, which is 65% rural, and and have people say, we don't know what that is. They always say, oh, yeah, they're the ones that do all these different things. Oh, yeah, that's in the Appalachia. You know, I mean, people know about it. And uh, sometimes I think that's sort of the nature of radio is that you get really caught up in your own thing and you forget that, you know, this is a ripple in a pond and it's going out to a much larger audience. And that person who may have been moved by something that they heard on WMMT may have said that to someone else who then traveled and moved out west to California, who then shared that with that person. And it goes, you know, the power of it is truly mind boggling. And Nina's been discovering that just here, seeing the connection between, you know, Yellow Springs in, in Whitesburg, Kentucky and WMMT and WYSO. And this happens all the time. So I think it's a real powerhouse in its vision and in its tenacity and perseverance and in the holistic nature of its vision for what it could be in this community. I think it's really amazing. And, you know, there's so many places in the country that aspire to do what's happening here. Yeah. To be a community media center where all different kinds of media uh, are created and inform each other and um, describe the local story in so many different ways. And mix with performing art and live performance. Mm-hmm. It was, it's, you know, the, it's, it was cutting Apple edge. Apple Shop was like revolutionary. And you know that because you're here. But I, I want to tell a story about my husband who was um, has had a career in public radio. His name is Noah Adams, and he's from Kentucky, Ashland, Kentucky, to be specific. And he was working in Lexington in the early 70s at the what was then called WBKY. People who go back a few years will remember that. And... Uh, he made a documentary about the Red River Gorge, which was at that time under threat because the Army Corps was going to flood it. He made a documentary about the efforts to stop that. And um, and shortly after that, found his way to Whitesburg. He was sitting in a diner in Whitesburg, opened the magazine, Newsweek magazine, and saw an article about Apple Shop. And he said, what is going on? And he walked down the street, and he went to Apple Shop, and he said, all these young people were making radio, or they weren't making radio, at that, they were making media at that time, like their lives depended on it. And he said it was such an inspiration to him 
that if these people in this small town believed so strongly in their voices and their importance, the importance of their stories, I'm in. And he has told me so many times growing up in Appalachia how he was made to believe that he had to change his accent, right? That people would tell him, you'll never get a job outside of Appalachia if you don't change your accent. And there's some kind of a long-term pressure to not tell people he was from Appalachia, you know? And uh, he eventually, inspired by what he saw here, uh, went to work in, in Washington at NPR and had a long career there on, on NPR. Um, came back here whenever he could to do reporting and has such a strong belief in what's happening here at Apple Shop and what it started and what, uh, how it's led the way in giving people voice, giving people voice. So um, for me, you know, we've been married for 30 years. It's, he keeps bringing me back here. It's telling me, you know, we've been members, you know. So it's a, it's a powerful beacon for the rest of us in media to pay attention to, you know, that um, people have uh, found a way in this com- small community to give people voice and let them tell their stories. It's an inspiration. Um, well, you have to go. But thank you both so much um, for sitting sitting in here with me and for visiting us and everything you brought to share with us about radio nationally. It's been real helpful. Thank I, you for carrying the torch. one thing about <laughs> giving Sally and I, we believe in this community model, right? We're in this because members of our listening community give. That's why we do this. We don't want to work in stations where it's uh, commercially supported and there's, you know, big, big corporate money coming in. My radio station is like 60% of our income comes from our listeners. And that's the way we want it, you know. And, And it's a model that works. You know, it works. So um, maybe I can speak directly to your listeners. Maybe somebody's out there who hasn't given, you know, or maybe you used to give and you got out of the habit. But every little, every little bit helps at a station like this. And, you know, uh, be connected to the station. Pick up the phone and call them and say, you know, I haven't called in a while. There was a song I heard that reminded me of, touched me deeply, or there was a report I heard that gave me some information about my community that I needed. Um, Here's 10 bucks. That means a lot. It means a lot. So um, this model of community support is a precious thing. It's a very precious thing, and I know I know the listeners of WMMT know that, but I just wanna, just maybe maybe you haven't picked up the phone in a while, and I would urge you to do that. 
I think there's a mythology you're you're out uh, that we've maybe all bought into that um, it it takes you know it takes a mogul to make something happen, but there's no mogul in between me and you who are listening right now. There's just you and me, and uh, that is one of the most noble things human beings have ever done together is to pool their resources to do something greater for the larger group than they can each do alone. And that's what this model is based on. I think that's what Nina's speaking to. So you participating are um, are basically pooling resources to lift something up that is a benefit to everyone. And you can't do that alone. And we can't do that alone. So it's the magic that happens in this exchange that is actually um, so successful over human history. And I would argue the very best things that humans have ever done on this planet have been based on giving of themselves to one another to lift something up. And that's what this model is all about. Thank you. That's it for this special Spring Fun Drive edition of Mountain Talk, featuring Nina Ellis of WYSO and Sally Kane of the National Federation of Community Broadcasters. If you liked what you heard this evening, or maybe you're a faithful Monday Mountain Talk listener, and you tune in every Monday at 6 p.m. just to see who we talk to this week, please consider donating to support all the work that your public affairs team does to bring you these interviews, local and regional news, right here on WMMT. You can go online to www.wmmt.org to donate. And while you're there, why don't you let us know what you like about the station? What do you enjoy listening to? It helps us make better radio. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thank you so much for listening to and supporting Real People Radio. 